Well, hey, Foothill, how are you doing? Let's, oops, uh, let's grab our Bibles and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12, and let me kind of catch you up a little bit. Last week, um, I know that was a heavy sermon. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about, and that's because it was a heavy passage. And I, in fact, talked to some people afterwards, and they're like, man, I don't know that I'm saved. What am I doing? And uh, a little bit panicked about it, and, and I'm here to tell you uh, that's why Hebrews 6, 9 through 12 is such great news as, uh, as we get to approach that today. Well, what he said last week was essentially this. The writer of Hebrews said that, uh, that we don't base our salvation off of any kind of past experience. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't look back and say, well, I had some great spiritual moment, or I walked an aisle, or I raised my hand, or whatever. Those things may have led to genuine salvation, but we don't base them on those things. And, and we, want to, we want to see uh, that there is uh, some kind of evidence. So today, we're going to get to that evidence, and today he's going to point out to us a couple of things, some outward evidence and then an inward confidence that we can have that we are children of God. That you are genuinely saved. You know, this is what the Bible wants for you. This is what God wants for you. God doesn't want you walking around like, you know, with a little flower daisy and going, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He wants you to be fully assured that you are his. And, and you're going to hear this today. And I hope this is extraordinary good news for those of you who are like, man, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where I am with Christ. But I also hope in some ways there's some of you here today that it will sort of shake the branches a little bit and help you go, you know what? I don't think I'm in at all. And I want to be in and I want to have what this writer talks about. Okay? So let's just start diving into it. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you. And I invite you to pick that up. Follow along. This is so helpful. It's so helpful for you to hear the preached word, but then see it come out of the text. And if you can't see it come out of the text, then I'm not doing my job. And, uh, and I'm, I'm a false teacher and I'm not helping you. I want you to be able to see that what we talk about in here actually has its origins within the text of scripture, okay? Because I got nothing to say to you outside of this. So we'll pick up right where we left off last week. We ended in verse 8, and today we start off in, in verse 9. And the first thing he's going to tell us is you want to know uh, if you're genuinely saved, then you're going to see outward evidence, okay? There is outward evidence. So let's start reading uh, in, in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, so he's just said some hard things in verses 1 through 8, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now notice what he says. He calls them beloved. Okay, he, he wants her to know, I love you. Everything I'm saying is coming from a place of love. I'm not angry. I'm not, I'm not trying to be harsh with you. I'm not just trying to beat you over the head with the truth of Scripture. I, I love you. But he's like a good doctor, right? And a good doctor won't lie to you about your diagnosis. He'll tell you exactly what's wrong with you so that he can prescribe the proper cure. Let's say it this way, so that you'll accept the proper cure. Because if you went to a doctor and he said, hey, you know, you thought, man, something's wrong with me. I don't know what it is. And he goes, you know what? Uh, your problem is you've got a cold. I'm like, oh, well, wow, that's crazy. I'm, and, and that's great news. Like, I'm not as bad off as I thought. But, but the bad news is we got to do chemo. You'd be like, what? Like, no, no, I'm going to get over this. No, he'd have to tell you, no, you have a ravaging form of cancer, and I'm going to prescribe you 
the cure, right? That's when you'd accept it. Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. I'm telling you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be as accurate as I can with you and your heart and help you understand where you are, and I'm going to show you the cure. So he's done this, and he's done it over and over already, and now he's going to get to, let's say, some words of comfort. He's going to say, look, but I look at you, Hebrews, you little band of Christians there being persecuted in Rome, I see you. And I see the grace of God at work in you. I see outward evidence that you are genuinely saved. I see what he says, better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, like what? What does he see that tells him, I'm seeing fruit, I'm seeing evidence of genuine salvation? Well, look at, look at verse 10. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. What does he see? He says, I see that you've loved and served one another. And yes, I see it in your past. I see it as evidence of that initial faith. But, he, but look what he says. He says, I, I, it wasn't just then. You still do it. Right? There's still. One of the things, Christian, we want to see throughout our lives is not I can look back and go, man, I was on fire for God when I first got saved, and it's completely gone now. No, genuine Christianity will have ongoing fruit. There will still be things that are true about you, okay? And so he says, I see this. I see it past, I see it present, and I even see why you're doing it. He gets down to the motivation. He says, you're doing it, for, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work, the love you showed for his sake, right? You, you're doing this for all the right reasons. You're doing this. This is coming from a place of we love Jesus, like, we're not doing this in order to be saved. We're not loving and serving in order to be saved. We're loving and serving because we already love and serve God. See, there, there are a lot of ways to motivate people. I mean, Stephen just talked about it even in giving. And God doesn't do this in giving. He doesn't do it in serving. He doesn't do anything. You can motivate people uh, with money. That's not service. You can motivate people with sad puppies that are shaking and Sarah McLaughlin in the background, right? And, and you feel guilty, and so, oh my gosh, I've, I've got to give money to that, right? Or, or, or you can motivate them um, with fear, like, like uh, I'll fire you, uh, you do what I say, I will control you. You can do this as parents, right? Or you can motivate them out of love. See, Christian motivation Genuine Christian motivation comes from a place of this is what Christ has done for me. I, I'm already a disciple. I, I want to do some things now. I want to serve. I want to love. I want to give. It comes from a place of going, I'm, I'm a child of God. The gospel motivates us because we look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus is going to, you know, John 13, he's going to reach down and wipe the disciples' feet. And he says, now, I served you. Now you serve one another. In other words, you can't stoop lower than Jesus just stooped. You can't do more than he's already done. We look to Jesus for that. We look and say, he's our motivation. We are, we are gospel-motivated people. That's how this works. But, but notice, notice verse 10, just if you, if, we, if you missed it, he says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook these things. 
That's great. I mean, I love that God dangles out in front of his people all the time, reward, reward, reward. Now, now do not mistake this. He's not saying that if you'll love and if you'll serve and if you'll give and if you'll do have all this outward evidence, then I will save you. There is a, there is a, 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 a massive difference. There are different universes. Religion says... I obey, I serve, I love, I give in order to be accepted by God. Christianity and the gospel says I am, I am loved and accepted unconditionally. Therefore, I obey and I love and I serve and I give. All those things. You see, these are, these are different universes. God holds out. And he says, God's not so unjust as to overlook this. You understand, God is not so unjust as to overlook the tiniest act of service. Moms and dads, when you serve your children. Bosses, when you serve your employees. Employees, when you serve your employers. Church folk, when you serve other church folk. There is an any demeaning act. There is no such thing as a small act that God will go, that's too small. That's too large. He sees it all, and he says there's a reward. In fact, I want you to see this in Matthew. Uh, look, at, look at Matthew chapter 10. Now, 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 look at how he says this. This is Jesus talking. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water. Now, that's a very insignificant act. Okay, just, just a cup of water. Now look how he says this. Because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, now pay attention to what, how he said it. He does not mean whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because that little one is a disciple. That's saying, hey, if you're not a Christian and you give one of my people a cup of cold water, there will be a reward for you. No, he's saying, the person giving the cup of cold water is a disciple, therefore he gives. Therefore he goes, I want to give, therefore, like this is where it comes from. I don't give in order to be a disciple, I give because I'm a disciple, and there's a reward that goes along with it. Do you see this? This is the Christian motivation for giving. So the point of all this is simply this, we display an outward evidence of an inward reality. That's, that's Christianity. Something inside has changed. And it will inevitably, it must, it has to show its head. And it comes out and it shows us the evidence. Christ changes. You understand that when you become a Christian, Christ changes your desires. Like you will, you will find yourself actually wanting to do things you'd have never wanted to do. Like go to church. You'll actually want to do things you never want to do. Like, like live for Jesus. Like please him. And you'll not want to do things you did before. Like, like the sin that maybe is still even a part of your life. And yet there's something about it. You say, man, I hate this. I, I hate that I keep doing that. You don't think like that if you're not a Christian. See, um, I liken it to this. Um, let, me, let me see. Uh, how many of you could look back in your childhood and say, there's certain things my mom and dad fed me that I hated? 
just didn't want to eat them. You know, for me, it was most vegetables. Just, they were all steamed and mushy and, ugh, you know, just did not like them. But you'd say, interestingly, it's like my taste buds have changed. Like, I actually like things now that I used to hate. I literally now make them for myself. Not because mom is standing over and saying, eat your broccoli. You go, I like broccoli. Craziest thing. I actually like broccoli. I don't, but you might, right? So, so. <laughs> Right? Your, your taste buds have changed. This is the gospel. This is what it does to you. It actually comes in, reorients it. Now you have tastes for things that you never had a taste for. And you go, I don't do this because I have to. There's no nothing, the sense of duty just pushing down on me. And I, I got to be religious and I got to. No, now I do it because you know what? I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like I have a new taste for righteousness. I have a distaste for sin. All those things I used to love. This is what the gospel does. It brings an outward evidence of an inward reality. But now, so I, I think the question is, have you been changed by the gospel? Have, have you, can you say, man, Chris, that's true. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not wanting you to compare yourself to anybody in this room. I'm saying, can you look and say, no, there's been a fundamental shift. I, I love even though I don't do them perfectly, I, I love, I want the things that Christ wants for me. I don't want the things that he doesn't want for me. I'm grieved by my sin. Can you say that? And then can you look at your life and go, man, there's actual fruit being produced? Can you say that? That's the outward evidence of an inward reality. But now he's going to go further, and he's going to say, but there's more. But wait, there's more, right? There's, there's more that you can have, and it's more than just an outward evidence. Now he's going to say, there can be an inward confidence that you can know as a Christian. And this is where he's driving. Man, I want you to have the full assurance. I want to suggest to you that what he's going to describe for you and me is the greatest Christian experience that there is. The greatest thing you can have as a Christian is what he's going to describe here in verses 11 and 12. Look at it with me, okay? So he says, and we desire, you know what that desire word, that, that word is actually translated, and I don't want to be inappropriate here, that word is translated elsewhere in scripture as lust. This is like, we have this massive, like, desire this 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 longing for you to know something for for each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end why so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise now i want to, i want you to see something well, let's let's press the pause button on hebrews chapter 6 verse 11 and 12 and i want you to just back up I don't know, might be just a few pages uh, to Ephesians chapter one. Okay, I wanna let Paul talk to us a minute because I want you to see that what the writer of Hebrews is praying and hoping and eager for is the same thing that Paul is praying and hoping and eager for. And I want you to see a progression in your faith. I, I want you to see that God expects, God would want for you and I, for us to see progress, growth, and, and things that are just amazing. So watch, watch what Paul does here in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, actually just skip down to verse 16. No, no, I'm sorry. Look at verse 15. For this reason, so he just said what he said, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, 
If I heard that you confessed faith in Christ, but look at this, and your love toward all the saints. So there's the outward manifestation of an inward reality. You're now loving all the saints. But then look at this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's what I pray for you, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. What did he just say? You know what I pray? I pray that you'll add to your faith. I pray you'll add knowledge. I pray wisdom will come. I pray there'll be an expansion of what you know about God. I want your eyes to be open to even greater glories. We should grow in knowledge. We grow in doctrine. We grow in our understanding of the word of God. We grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. We don't know it all the day we come to Christ. Not, not, not even close. We won't know it all before we die, the day we die. We, 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 we are learning all, all life long. And let me suggest to you, this is how we grow in love. One of the ways we grow in love towards somebody is by knowing them more. I mean, Michelle and I got married 25 years ago. I knew her, right? I mean, we were friends. We, we dated. We went through all of that. But now I've known her for 25 years. And I love her more than I've ever loved her before because I know her more. She knows me more. That's what he's saying. I want, I, I'm praying that you'll know. But look at what the end game is for Paul. Keep going. He says that, in other words, here's what I'm driving for. Here's really what I want. I want that knowledge to grow that you may know the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, and then he just launches off into heaven. What does he want? He wants you and I to be filled with hope. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11. What's his eager desire? What's he really, really want? Notice how he says it, and, and, and you got to see this, and if you're not reading in the English Standard Version, it's not that it's the only version you can read, but, I, but they get it right here, and some of yours, the NIV, for example, gets it wrong. Okay, let me show you why. It says this, verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope. Not we eagerly desire or, you know, that, that you'd show earnestness until you have. No. It's not until, it's to, right? He, he wants us to know that now. In other words, let me, let me try to help you sort of put these verses together. So he says, I congratulate you for what I see, the fruit of your life, verse 9 and 10. I see this in you. I see fruit that is being born. I see better things. I see that. And that's good. That's good that we see that in your life. But then he goes on, and what he's saying in verse 11 is now, show, if you would only show the same earnestness that you do in pursuing love and serving and doing these things that you do, if you'd show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope, if you'd pursue the full assurance of hope the same way you do those other things, your whole life will change. Everything will change for you. You will live 
a victorious Christian life. You, you will enjoy the Christian life that you've been given. Now, what does he mean by hope? What is this hope that he talks about? Is, um, well, let's talk about what it's not. It's, it's, not, um, it's not a spirit of hope. Like in America, we just kind of talk about hope in very detached, like ethereal. We're just kind of, with hope? You know, Obama's campaign, I'm not trying to be political, but it's just hope. In what? You? Like, I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. I do not have any hope in you. I have no hope in politics. I have no hope in, my hope can't be America. It's not some spirit of hope that we latch on to. It's not just keep hoping it's all we have. I don't even know what that means. It's not positivity. Just, just be positive. Like that's what we gotta be. We as Christians just gotta be, gotta be positive people. I mean, listen, I gotta tell you, it's one of the most discouraging things to pastor is to preach the gospel, hear what it says, and say it to you, and then hear some of you or listen to Facebook or whatever, watch what's happening, and hear you talk about things like, you know, it's just gotta, just gotta be positive. That's not even in your Bible. There's hope. No, there's something greater than just this kind of idea of positivity or I'm a glass half full, glass half empty person. What will fill your glass is the hope he's talking about. And this, by the way, isn't isn't hope that you'll be saved. The Bible will not talk like that. The Bible wants you to know that you're saved. If you're saved. Okay? So what is this hope? Well, unfortunately, you you can't see it in an English translation. For some reason, they've decided not to translate it. But if you saw it in the Greek, you'd see this. It's a noun. It's hope. And it has an article in front of it. He literally says, the hope. I want you to have a full assurance of the hope. This is a particular hope that I want you to have. Not inside of you. It's objective, it's outside of you, it's the hope. It is a particular kind of hope that I want you to have. So, 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 so what is it? Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture and let's listen to Paul. So Romans chapter 8, look at how Paul says this. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You know this. You can't say, I hope to go to the Grand Canyon when you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're there. That would be dumb, right? That'd be stupid. No. For who hopes what he sees? It's there. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, now now look at what he says in uh, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One more, Titus Titus chapter 1, I believe. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. There's the fruit of uh, some inward fruit, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's our hope? It's outside of us, right? It's the hope. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is not some idea. Our hope is Jesus and God and all that God has prepared for us as believers. This is our hope. And it's amazing and it's glorious. And Paul says this is it. See, here's a big mistake we make as Christians. We make this massive mistake of confining our salvation to this life and this world. Do, do you see this? Like, in, and, and you'll hear TV preachers talk like this. It's your best life now. Right, you, can, you can have it all right now. <laughs> that, that's not how the Bible talks. This life is not all there is. Yes, salvation starts now. Yes, there are benefits now, but it goes on forever. So that what we have now, Paul says we are saved in hope. Like, like that's it. We, we get saved and now we have this hope. So much awaits, for, uh, awaits us. Like what we have right now is what the Bible calls first fruits. That is you would go, the, the harvesters would go down and there was actually a feast in Israel for it. And they would, they would take the first gleanings of the wheat crop or the barley or whatever. They'd go and wave it before the Lord. What were they doing? They were saying, thank you. Like here is a, a deposit on what we know is to come. The Bible calls it a down payment. The Bible calls it a foretaste. Like just imagine, you know, you say to your kids, and you know, we live in Southern California, so this probably isn't as wonderful as somebody else who lives in the Midwest or a foreign country. They say to their kids, um, they open up a gift, they really want to make this a nice surprise. They open up a gift and the kids pull out Mickey Mouse ears. It's got their name printed on the front. They're all excited. Well, this is great, Mom and Dad, but here's why we're giving it to you. Because in two weeks, we're going to Disneyland. Ah! You know, they freak out, right? Can the kids enjoy the Mickey Mouse ears? Yes, kids do, right? That's why they buy them, right? They're like, no, look at my ears, right? They they, they love them. But what they're loving is they know this this is just a foretaste. Like, this is this tiny, tiny little nothing that doesn't even compare when I walk into the happiest place on earth. Right? I can't wait. See, this is just a down payment. This is an earnest money deposit that God has given us uh, in this life. Uh, in fact, we could say it this way. We are, we are right now, I want to be careful, so hear what I'm saying. Hear me out before you tune me out. We are partially saved right now. I don't mean, you know, you're going to lose your salvation. I don't mean that. I mean, the truth of the matter is, the Bible talks about, it says, Chris, it would say to me, you are saved and you are being saved. Why does it talk like that? Because I still sin. Because there's still sin in my body. There's still, there's still bad thoughts in my head. There's still injury I cause with my mouth. There's still things that are done to me. I, I still feel the effects of sin. But Paul says, 
There's going to come a day, there's going to be a change in the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed. Sin will be no more. There will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more death. There will be not one more bill that you have to worry about paying. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more relationship problems. Everything will be set to rights. It'll all be as God intended it to be. And sin will have no more place. That's what I mean by partially saved, because then we'll be fully, finally saved. Okay, so then what does he mean by full assurance? Because he says, I want you to have, I want you to have the same earnestness to have the full assurance. You know what he means? He, he, he means, I want you to be totally convinced that this is true. I, I, I want this to be the center of your thinking. I want the hope to which he has called you to be the most real thing in the world to you. Because if it is, it will change everything. Like, do you believe in the hope that God has for you? This is Paul's prayer. That I pray you would know this. God doesn't want us to walk around, but the problem is we don't think about it very much. We just flat out do not spend our time thinking about the hope. We think about all kinds of things. Let me suggest to you, you think about your hope very, very often. Whatever it is that you hope in, it occupies the center of your thinking. And you'd say, but Chris, doesn't that... Doesn't that detach us? Like, I just become this kind of no earthly good because I'm so heavenly minded? No. No, that is not the testimony of Scripture at all. The Bible says, without this hope, this kind of hope, you can't live fully present. I mean, just imagine, this would radically alter. This would allow you to do things. If you had this kind of hope, this kind of down payment, this kind of deposit that you were working from, you understood your hope, you were fully convinced, I'm telling you, it would absolutely renovate your life. You would, you would live fully like you would sacrifice like you've never sacrificed for. You wouldn't be afraid to sacrifice. You wouldn't be afraid to give. You'd be like Paul says to the Philippians. I mean, I don't care if I'm poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I will be glad and rejoice. If you do this, this will allow you not to be envious. This will allow you not to be rivalrous. This will allow you to not have selfish ambitions. This will allow you to do everything without grumbling or complaining. I mean, we could go on and on what this kind of hope would do in you today. This doesn't detach you. This helps you live fully present. See, and the thing the Bible says is that anyone, this is for anyone, everyone can get in on this, even those who are suffering miserably. Like one of the reasons the, the book of Job is in the Bible is because very few people in the history of the world will suffer as much as Job suffered. So when we suffer, it's not that we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Job. You look and say, how did Job handle it? What was the anchor of his soul that got him through? Look at Job 19. Look what he says. For I know, in the middle, this is in the middle of the book, 
I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see him. Do you hear the confidence in his voice? Who talks like that? Either somebody who is so delusional, he's an idiot, or this is true, and he really, really believes this. Skip forward to, um, to chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 1, and, and look at I mean, this is a very familiar verse to a lot of people. A lot of people don't know where it comes from, but here it is. Now, faith is the assurance, there it is, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is the total assurance in what I don't see. It's what I'm hoping for, and I'm utterly assured And chapter 11 is all about people who had full assurance in this life. And having that full assurance of their hope is not what took them out of this life. It's what allowed them to live in the midst of this life. Some of them in chapter 11, as we go through, you'll see, some of them were amazingly prosperous. And without skipping a beat, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, yeah, but some got sawn in half. And some were tortured. Some were murdered. What what in the world? How do people live like that? They have full assurance of hope. You see what God wants for you? In fact, skip down to chapter 11 and verse 8, and look what it says about Abraham. Okay, we'll just give you one example. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, if you read the story of Abraham, you find out that he looked and Lot said, you know, we can't be together anymore. And he says, Lot, you go ahead, take whatever you want. Lot looked over and said, oh, I want Sodom and Gomorrah. I want the palace city. I want this beautiful location. Abraham said, go, that's fine, you take it. I'm going to go over here and dwell, dwell in tents because I'm looking for a better city. I'm looking for a greater hope. Like I am fully convinced that I have a hope that is bigger than this. Do you have a full assurance? So I don't, I don't care how good your doctrine is. I love doctrine. Those of you who know me know I love it. But what is that if you don't have Full assurance. I don't care how much you know your Bible. You could memorize it and all that. That's great. You should. But if you don't have a full assurance of hope, do you have a full assurance of hope? That's what God wants for you. This, in fact, is the key to a triumphant, victorious Christian life. Do not, I do not, we do not believe or preach the prosperity gospel. Because I just read to you Job. (laughs) I believe that you can be victorious, you can be triumphant in the midst of horrific uh, circumstances if you'll just know the full assurance of your hope. Okay, so so you say, well, great. I want it. How? How do I get the full assurance of hope? He tells us. Look at... at, at, uh, uh, verse 11. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same 
earnestness, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Okay, so there's earnestness and sluggishness. And and you can't be both the same. You can't be diligent and lazy at the same time, can you? Now, you can be a, a diligent pursuer of money and a lazy pursuer of your wife or spouse, but you can't be, can't be, a diligent and lazy pursuer of money or a diligent and lazy pursuer of your spouse. You can't be both at the same time. And he's saying, I, I want you to be diligent. How do you do that? What does it look like? It looks like paying attention, being devoted to your hope. Like do, you pay, like, like, do you know where the hope meter is, the full assurance of hope meter is in your life? Is it really low on fuel? Is it really, man, we're gassed up and ready to go? Do you pay attention to that? Do you do things that are constantly robbing you of hope? Are you putting things in your ear? Are you saturating your mind on things that are deleting that hope, draining that hope? Or are you doing things that will actually make the, 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 the needle go higher? See, I dare say, we... Uh, you cannot do this on autopilot. This is not just some sort of passive. The Christian life is not a passive life. We passively, God saves us. He saves us of his own sovereign grace. He reaches down. He regenerates our heart, yes. But he doesn't save us to sit in our cans and do nothing. He saves us to be devoted to something to pursue something? Are you saturating your mind with the gospel? Are you memorizing it? Are you going to scripture to hear the promises? And you say, well, Chris, I have a hard time understanding it. Then are you in church all the time getting fed so that, that that needle will keep increasing? Or is it just kind of a sporadic thing for you? See, church attendance is not some duty that I'm here to just cram down your throat. It's it's the, the means by which you are filled with hope in your Savior. It ought to be the thing you're going, you couldn't keep me away. There's no way I'm missing it. I need to be fed with the words of hope. See, you're going to be devoted. Look, we, we all know what devotion looks like. Everybody in here, no, look, some of you could tell me who threw the winning, you know, catch in the 1964 Super Bowl. I don't even know if it goes back that far. I'm not a sports, but whatever. I mean, you, you, you could tell me who, who you know, the, who won NASCAR and who's every car. You could tell me everything about some certain baseball team. You could tell me every Academy Award winner. You could tell me every Academy Award winning movie. You're devoted to something. I know you are. And by the way, nothing's wrong with There's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is, is when your diligence points there and your laziness points towards Jesus. Are you diligent? But he says, don't just be, he says, there's gotta be diligence, but there's gotta be this earnestness, but there's also not sluggishness. What is sluggish? Well, does it mean lazy? Yeah, But, but it actually, it actually means slow to become involved in something. Isn't that interesting? The Bible absolutely knows our hearts. And it knows that what we tend to do is go, I'll get to it later. I'll become diligent when my kids are grown. I'll become diligent when I finally land in a relationship and I can relax. 
I'll become diligent when my career gets off the ground. I'll become diligent in the pursuit of the full assurance of my hope when what? Is there anything? Is there anything you could possibly want more than this? See, we put our hope in all kinds of things. The problem is most of the things we put our hope in are not worth putting our hope in. And they just burn us. And we're being invited to something greater. But there's something else he says. He says, I, I, it's not just about diligence and that, but he also says, look at, look at verse 11. For, for, that, you, that you might, may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who's he talking about? Well, probably in context, he's going to take us to chapter 11. Look at this great hall of faith. Look at these people who've run the race. Listen, in every community of faith, there are people who have followed Jesus patiently day after day, year after year, decade after tiring decade. And this is why God puts you in a church. And you look around, and there are people worth imitating. So that you're not wondering, what does it look like? There's people. You can actually go up to a person that you can touch and say, how'd you get through this? Oh, here's how. Not some, you know, canned answer. See, we get really excited. We get really excited and we, you know, follow people on Twitter, you know, some, some celebrity, some, some movie star, some, some athlete that professes Christ and we're so excited about that. Oh my gosh, somebody just admitted they love Jesus. Woohoo! You know, that's awesome. And it is. The Bible gets really, really excited about people who recognize this life is a triathlon. And they don't gas out in the first hundred yards of the swimming leg. They just patiently plug along day after day after mundane day. They plug along as they raise children. And they plug along as they start a job. And they plug along as they're in college. And they plug along throughout all the stations of life, staying with Jesus, following Jesus until the day. And listen, you, you, you find somebody someday who has a full assurance of hope and they're in the hospital and you go visit them and you will walk out of there more encouraged than when you walked in, thinking, I'm going there to comfort them. And you're the one walking out with tears in your eyes going, they just comforted me. Why? Who does that? People have a full assurance of their hope. Do you have that? Because you know, here's the good news. The Bible doesn't just hold that out in front of you and go, okay, this is a really impossible thing. You can't have it. We're going to dangle it way far away from you. It's like a carrot in front of the, you know, the donkey that never quite gets it. I'm saying, I'm telling you this so that you'll go after it. Be devoted to this above everything. That you would know a full assurance. Foothill Church, if that was true of us, if that was true of any of us, if that was true of you and of me, you would be unbreakable. You would be unstoppable. Your faith would be unquenchable. It would be unbreakable 
if we just would know and pursue the full assurance of our hope. Are you earnest? Are you pursuing it? Let's pray.